Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very pleased to see so many of you come here to hear about Brooklands. I'd like especially to welcome the widow of Captain Duncan Davis, the founder of Brooklands, and Wing Commander Greve, the manager of Brooklands Aviation, who are attending tonight. And uh, Sir Vernon <laughs> and Sir Vernon Brown, who lectured to us earlier last, last in the last session, he's here tonight. I'm very glad to see the lecturer's wife too. Not all lecturers' wives have the courage to come. Well, now, regarding our lecturer, I have some notes here. I hope he won't get too shy if I read them out. Dr. Gardner was born in February 1907, and he got an honors degree at Birmingham University. Then he went to Vickers Aviation in 1929 and held the posts of Chief Stressman, Chief Technician, and Assistant Chief Designer Aircraft before being appointed Chief Designer Guided Weapons and a Special Director of Vickers Armstrong's Aircraft Limited in 1953. In 1957, he became Director and Chief Engineer, Military Aircraft, and in 1959, Technical Director. With the regrouping of British industry in 1960, he became Technical Director, British Aircraft Corporation, Weybridge. Recently, he has undertaken special duties in connection with research, long-term programs, and education. He's been associated with the design of all Weybridge-built aircraft from 1929 until 1953, when he took charge of the Guided Weapons Department. I think I should mention, too, that in 1958, he became a member of the Churchill College Executive Committee, and the Churchill College Building Committee. He served on a lot of committees of this society. In fact, those are what I've mentioned are just only a few of his activities. He's a member of the Court, of the Council, and of the Appointments Board of Southampton University. He's a member of the Education Committee of the Governors of the College of Aeronautics, and a Governor of Brooklyn's County Technical College. He's also a member of the Court of the University of Surrey. Recently, he has been appointed as a member of the Education Advisory Committee for the Royal Air Force. In view of all those activities, I think we are greatly obliged to him for coming along to lecture to us tonight. And his subject is um, Brooklyn's The Cradle of Aviation. Dr. Gardner. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for that very kind introduction. I was pleased you mentioned my wife. The reason I have to invite her is that it's the only time we get together when we go out. I've just come from Vicar's house, where there's been a photographic section open, by Lord Hill, and his words are ringing in my ears now. He said that in his job, if you're over 50, you're a has-been, and if you're 65, you're a senile wreck. <laughs> and he commented on the fact that his doctor's daughter seems to have an entirely different opinion of the human frame from the one he was taught when he started work. It only shows that it depends on your point of view. Well, tonight, 
I would like to pay tribute to Brooklands by attempting to show how the pioneers experimenting with their primitive flying machines solved some of the mysteries of aeronautics and established from a motor racing track a cradle of aviation. I think you'll all be interested to know that the name Brooklands is not derived from the little brooks that meander in the Way Valley, as one might well imagine, but it's been handed down from the name de Brock, the name of a Norman family who in the Middle Ages held rights over the Brooklands and Byfleet Manors. The word Brooklands means many things to different age groups. The youth of the district think of a technical college. Those who were young in the late twenties think of a motor racing track dominated by the Vickers Sheds. Whilst many of my own age associate the name with a flying club and those exciting years when flying was fun and not a huge commercial enterprise. Those years of the flying club are those which stick most in my memory. Whenever I think of these early years of Brooklands, I recall the words of Lawrence Pritchard, who wrote in his history in 1946. The years 1909 to 1911 were wonderful, amazing, rousing years, the like of which will never be seen in the air again. Years of extravagant prophecy and wild, unbalanced enthusiasm. For once the moon was in the grasp of man. He knew then he had conquered the air. I doubt even if Lawrence knew how quickly his prophecy of the moon would be realized. Today I think of Brooklands in preparing this lecture. And I conjure up the Way Valley. Thoughts of fishing, gambling, prize money, racing cars. Noisy young men with their open exhausts. Names such as Bernardo and Berkey, their Bentley's. Seagrave and his sunbeam. The test pilots, Matt Summers, George Bullman. The man who ran the flying club, Duncan Davis. The designers, Pearson and Cam, all come to mind. But most of all, I remember those pleasant Saturday afternoons when flying was a social event, and now the motor racing is finished, it's been replaced by a steady stream of civil aircraft, some of which have acquired a race of an international reputation. I'll start my uh, list of slides with a map of Brooklands about 1822. As you will see here, a map which was prepared when the Duchess of York sold Brooklands and it was split up away from the Byfleet Manor estate. It was at that time a part of the Oatlands estate. I've shown on the map, as you will see, the Southern Railway line, which was imposed later on, and an outline of the track to give you a, a location. Uh, the point marked A in my slide is the place we, of, where Brooklyn's farm started and that is the, the center of the place which is called Brooklyn's.
B is the location of the second Brooklyn's house. That is the technical college of today. C is the first Brooklyn's house, which was built by Caleb Payne, who was the keeper of the King's Menagerie and is almost worthy of a lecture by himself. That house was built in, in 1777 and pulled down by the Duke of York in 1804. I can only think he didn't like it. D is perhaps the most important part of my lecture. At that point, where the River Way crosses under the railway line and what was and is now the track, is the site of an of a iron village called an Iron Age village. And the date, as far as our records tell, is 500 BC. At that site was found a Roman bucket, which I'll speak later. Site E is a Hollick, was Hollick's farm, which was destroyed later. Over on the, the left here, which is the present, in, in present enclosed by Brookman's track, was Wintersall's farm. And on that farm, Lock King, the Hugh Lock King, the last of the line of Lock Kings, kept a famous herd of Jersey cattle. This had to be destroyed or sold when the track was built. And as a monument, I show the old house, which was the farmhouse of Wintersall's farm, which is now, as you see, used by the air traffic guard, the Air Training Corps, and is the only house of the original estate still standing within the track. I now come to an archaeological object which is in the British Museum and is labelled the Weybridge Bucket. This is a Roman bucket which was discovered when they were excavating the site for the foundations of those two bridges. It is dated about 800 B.C. And many similar buckets have, in fact, been found on the continent. It was fashioned from bronze sheet by repeated hammering and firing. And the twin handles have serpents' heads as hinge attachments. It was obviously of Italian manu manufacture. On this particular site where that bucket was found are traces of an earlier uh, history, as there were many arrowheads and Roman coins found. It's connected with the Caesar's camp on St. George's Hill, which is just over the main road there, and it was from that camp that Caesar crossed the Thames at Wharton-on-Thames near Cowie Stakes. In common with many areas, the Brooklands is in the Doomsday Book. The Black Prince who became the lord of the manor of Byfleet in 1337, is reputed to have erected a hunting lodge in the middle of what is now Brooklyn's. This it was supposed to be for his father, Edward III, as he used to hunt in Windsor Forest, which came right up to church in those days. Gambling debts seem to have a very significant effect on the history of Brooklyn's. It's said that the local landowner, the Duke of York, who I just mentioned, had to sell the estate to pay the heavy gambling losses that he'd incurred. 
It was bought by a man named Sir Edward Hughes, Ball Hughes. He was so rich, he was known locally as the Golden Ball. Unfortunately, he was an incurable gambler, and a few years later, he had to sell the whole estate again to pay his gambling debts. It was then bought by Lord King, who was at that time the seventh Baron of Ockham. He was the grandson of the Lord Chancellor King of the 17th century. In addition to buying Brooklyn's estate, Lord King also bought Byfleet, and his successors bought most of the area that is now Weybridge Town. He died in 1833 and left to Weybridge and Byfleet properties to his second son, his only surviving son at that time, Honourable Peter Lockheed. The latter became a member of Parliament and took a great deal of interest in local affairs. On Brooklyn's estate, he built the, the house which has now become the well-known hand and spear, the beloved spike of so many racing enthusiasts. It was in this house that Robert Louis Stevenson read the proofs for his book, Treasure Island. Peter Locke King built this second Brooklyn's house on the site I showed in the first slide. It was completed in about 1861, and in um, 1936 it was sold to a limited company. From this window, I used to look out over the whole of Brooklyn on some very fine specimen trees, as my office was there during the end of the Second World War. Uh, it is now, as I've said, the Technical College, and I'm continually revisiting that house in my duties connected with the college. During the First World War, it was made available as a convalescent home and was administered by Dame Ethel Lock King, the wife of the owner at that time, Hugh Fortescue. It was here that Rex Pearson, as chief designer, and George Edwards, Rex Pearson as chief engineer, I should say, and, Re and George Edwards as chief designer, designed the Viscount, and it was here that the Valiant was conceived. You will remember the Viscount was a type suggested by the Brabazon Committee, which sat during the war years to consider the future of British civil aviation. And the Byfleet and the Viscount was one of those aircraft which are recommended. A strange point of memory always attacks me on this, looking at this slide. I can only remember that patio in sunshine. I can never remember it raining there. I'm sure there must be something to do with it. The design office returned to uh, Weybridge Works in 48, and Brooklyn's house then gradually became uh, a part of the uh, County Council Authority, and eventually Brooklyn County Technical College. It's still playing a part in providing young engineers. The Lock King family lived in the house from 1830 until it was sold in 1936. It was remodeled by Hugh Fortescue Lock King, the last of the family, about 1860, 1886. Uh, Hugh Fortescue, who is the principal actor in our story this evening, met his wife at Cambridge, where they were fellow students. She was the, then, aged 20, the daughter of Sir Thomas Gore Brown, 
who was at that time the governor of Tasmania, where his daughter was born. He afterward became the governor of New Zealand. Their life story is really the Brooklyn saga. As between them, they created this bit of Brooklyn's motoring history, as well as proving Weybridge's most kindly and municipal benefactors. It may well be that their decision to build Brooklyn's was influenced by the fact that their father sold some of the land to build the railway track. This is one of the slides, or one of the pictures taken, at the time that the bridge, which is known as the Bridge of the Seven Arches, was built. And my next slide, which shows some of the work that was done, and that is the actual cutting just beyond Weybridge Station. I think there's no doubt that the impact of this work on the Lock King family had something to do with Brooklyn's later. Certainly, it had this much to do as the family fortunes prospered mightily as a result of selling the land to the railway company. And I gather the proceedings were enlivened by the objections of the Byfleet Parish Council as they complained it was disturbing their rural peace and they objected to a noisy railway. Well, Hugh Lock King proved to be as good a businessman as his father and grandfather before him. And he added appreciably to his estate by buying up all the land around Weybridge. Very few people who were bought houses in the uh, area, which is the Weybridge area, will have missed seeing in their deeds a parcel of land owned by Hugh Fortescue Lock King. He didn't confine his activities to Weybridge. As soon after his marriage, he moved to Egypt for health reasons, and he bought there the Mina House Hotel near the Pyramids, which I gathered was a very valuable investment. This is the clubhouse, which is a copy of the Mina House Hotel in Egypt, near the Pyramids. It is the, uh, the home of the original clubhouse of Brooklyn's Automobile Racing Club, B-A-R-C. And you'll notice the balcony of Occidental design. This building still exists. It houses the BAC R&D department under Sir Bond Wallace. And it's here that 20 years afterwards, Sir Barnes is still continuing his work on advanced projects. He was at this ceremony this evening, looking younger than ever. I think at this point I should introduce my audience to the hero of this story, Hugh Fortescue Lock King, the last of the line, descended from the Baron, Baron's King of Ockham. I gather the family was started by the son of, a, of an Exeter grocer who moved to London to take up the law. He is the man who eventually became the Lord Chancellor. And this is the end of the line. His wife, a very well-known character in Weybridge, was the driving force behind the building of the track. In fact, she was the driving force behind the management of the track. As I gather on occasion, she actually took the money at the door when there was no one else to do it. She became Dame Ethel as a result of her work going 
the First World War, when Brooklyn's house was turned into a convalescent home. Now, during the latter part of the uh, 19th century, the Itala Motor Works had been built on the site of the BA, of present BAC main factory, just behind the existing head office. And it was in an Itala motor car that Hewlock King used to tour the continent and frequently visited Egypt. I believe it was this car that uh, built up his great love of motoring. In the original concept, he was supported by a number of public figures, not least by Lord Montague, the father of the present peer. He was at that time the vice president of Brooklyn's committee under the first president, Lord Lonsdale. Other committee members included the Duke of Tech, Duke of Beaufort, Lord Northcliffe, Earl of Essex, the Earl of Dudley, Viscount Churchill, the Duke of Westminster, together with several members of the Derby family. And now we come to the actual building of the track. Here is the finishing straight. It was on this finishing straight that A.V. Rowe made his first experimental flights with his triplane, of which I will talk later. You will see some more of that. You see in the picture the clubhouse, as it was soon after the track was finished. My next slide reminds me of those early slides of the railway. The track was built between December 1906 and June 1907, less than six months. The whole project, from the start to finish, was completed in under six months. Some 2,000 laborers, most of them Irish, were imported into the district, and as you see here, horses and mules were the chief source of power. Some of the equipment was fairly elementary, and as you'll see in the next slide, some seven miles of this railway track had to be laid in order that those horses and mules could pull the sand and cement from one side to the other to build the banking. I think it's fair to say that it took Weybridge nearly two generations to cover from the impact of 2,000 Irish navvies. I gather their fights and their regular appearances in the local court with starters of drunkenness and other things was quite a thing. Many of those members of this, bra, this group will remember pictures of aeroplanes flying under that bridge. That was one of the local hazards of the flying club. But the important point is the whole thing is done in under six months. On my next slide, I show a picture taken on June the 17th, 1907. This was an occasion when a lunch was given by the Brooklyn's Automobile Racing Club, BARC, to mark the official opening of the track. In the first car was Dame Ethel Lockheed. I think she was, in fact, just off the picture here. But it's interesting to compare this slide and the state of the track at that time to the next slide. We've now moved on 50 years. This slide was taken in 1957, soon after the 
memorial which had been provided by Vickers Armstrongs to celebrate 50 years of racing was unveiled by Lord Brabazon. And the cars here look somewhat different from the cars 50 years earlier. These were all typical racing cars of the type that had raced on Brooklyn's tracks. You will see in the background how the old clubhouse has been built around some of the old buildings of, of Brooklyn's the racing days. And over, over on the left is the stratosphere chamber, which was built by Barn Wallace. Memorial, the memorial which was unveiled is shown in this slide. And you can see some of the things there which I shall be mentioning later. An interesting uh, story remains with me in that we persuaded Lord Brabazon to come and open, or at least unveil this memorial, at a time when he just started his holiday, or about to start his holiday in the south of France. And he was rather gloomy about having to delay going on holiday. We offered to take him out there in a, the firm's heron. And um, he was quite gloomy through some of the actual ceremony. Whether that had anything to do with the fact that the flight from Brooklyn to the south of France in the heron was the bumpiest and the most uncomfortable flight we can ever remember. We shall never know. I'm sure he never knew. And now I show on my next slide a bit of the history of Brooklyn's racing. In this car, SF Edge broke the world 24-hour record, which was just before that time held by America. He achieved this at a speed of 65.9 miles per hour, during which time he discovered 1,582 miles. This is the 7-3-quarter Napier engine touring car. In the latter part of the 24-hour race, he suffered appalling conditions, rain and thunder, and in fact his windscreen was broken. It's interesting to note that at that point in time, the lighting was just flared around the track. That's a very well-known picture, and it marks one of Britain's first, first 24-hour records, of which our story of Brooklyn's is dotted with such events. And up to this point, the majority of my material has been culled from the local historians. And I now go on to the aircraft side of the picture. Most of this material was in fact contained in a lecture which I gave as the Weybridge branch um, contribution towards the centenary celebrations three years ago. Uh, another activity of the, the branch was the construction of this aeroplane, which is a replica of the Vickers gun bus. It was built by the Vintage Aircraft Association of Brooklands. The body which is, was actually um, formed as a result of the enthusiasm of branch members and Weybridge apprentices. This was their contribution towards the centenary celebrations. It was built to be in time for the 
Maid Society's garden party, which you'll remember, was held at Cranfield. It has appeared in many flying displays. It still flies very well, although the number of hours on the engine has always been suspect. It has now been donated to the RAF collection. About 119 aircraft of this original design were built by Vickers at Brooklands as part of their contribution towards the First World War. And some 95 of the streamlined version, which was the latter mark of that aeroplane, were built in the latter years. For me, it's always had two very important facts. The first is that it was the first aeroplane that Rex Pearson, who was my first chief designer, made a major contribution towards, and its successor, known as the COW bus, or we used to call it the Cowgun Fighter, was the fir first aeroplane on which I worked when I joined Vickers in 1929. I now come to my first recollection of the prize money, which will always be in my mind when I think of Brooklands. Right from the first, the committee of the BARC had decided to introduce aviation to Brooklands as soon as possible. And so the racing club put up a prize of £2,500 in 1907 for the first flight of a plane around the complete circuit. And the man we remember most in these early attempts was the man in that picture who is building this triplane, A.V. Rowe. He came to Brooklands in 1907. He obtained a shed, which was next to the one occupied by the Honorable Moore Brabazon, and he assembled his machine there. He used to bring it out in the early hours of the morning, when there was no wind, and when there were no officials of BARC about, because he had been forbidden to use the track, the railway straight we saw on our first slide, to test this machine. But with friends, he managed to arrange quite a number of towed flights along the railway street. And later, in June 1908, he flew, made powered flights of between 75 and 150 feet in length, and flew actually a few feet above the ground. Whether this was the first flight ever made by a British constructed aeroplane will never be known. The honor has in fact been accorded to S.F. Cody, who, if you will remember, was experimenting at Farnborough with man-lifting kites. And from the experience he gained there, he constructed what eventually to be the first British military aircraft to be designed at Farnborough. He is seen in this picture with his wife as passenger, one of the first women to fly. Dame Ethel Lock King also flew at the at Brooklyn in the very early days, and she has the reputation of being the first woman to fall out of an aeroplane from the height of ten feet. A Weybridge enthusiast considered Rowe's activities were worthy of some recognition. And in uh, 1954, a plaque was erected just outside the R&D department, the old clubhouse, with that inscription. And it was actually opened by A.V. Rowe himself. We hope it will be there for many years to come.
We now go on to the actual flying side, and we're at Brooklands with the, as a result of the activities of Hope Thomas, who you'll remember was the editor of the graphic and a great um, supporter of aviation. It persuaded Henry Farman to come to Brooklands to demonstrate. And he came in a Henry Farman biplane. Um, Louis Paul and I hope I said. This is a, the picture of the poster that was put out. I gather that uh, Holt Thomas spent something like, uh, well, something between a thousand and two thousand pounds to arrange this demonstration of flying at Weybridge and had expected to get this back in gate money. Unfortunately, all the people at Weybridge stayed outside to watch and he collected 18 pounds. Here is a picture of the aeroplane in flight. And I think this is very much a picture that we think of when we think of those very early days of Brooklyn. Suddenly this is one of them. In the years between the building of the track in 1907 and the outbreak of war in 1914, Brooklyn became a high level in activity, both in the development of motor racing and in aviation. At the end of 1909, two engineers named Martin and Handerside, Handerside was the father of the present Bob Handerside, our sales director, they moved into the shed which had been provided for Louis Paulan to prepare his aeroplane for that previous flight. The company which came from the combination of those two was Martinside, and I gather you already had a lecture on that subject. Although short-lived, this company was to make a mark in the history of British aviation. One of it, the most, uh, well, our most famous designers, the past president of this society, first started work in the carpenter's shop with Martin Sides. I refer to the late Sir Sidney Camp. Here you will see a Martin Side, the monoplane there, in the, on the left of the picture, being followed by the Henry Farman box kites at one of these many flying meetings which were so popular in those days. I think we can now claim that the infant aircraft industry was now becoming quite active in the Brooklyn Cradle. Sopwith had established himself, he arrived in 1910 with a Howard Wright monoplane in the same year, A.V. Rowe came back and started building an experimental aircraft which finished up as the prototype of the famous Avro 504, which first flew in 1913. In the same year, the first aeroplane built by Bristol's, through a French design known as the Zodiac, began test flights. And Louis Blériot commenced production with a small company which later became known as the Air Navigation Company. The whole thing was a, a, a hive of activity at this point in time. In 1915, Vickers Aviation, which had been started at Vickers House in London, with the works of Crayford, bought the Itala Motor Works. This, you will remember, stood between the Brooklands Road and the entrance to St. George's Hill. And they added the famous Vickers Sheds, which have appeared in so many pictures of racing in Brooklyn. I show this in my next slide, which was 
taken about 1930, after there had been some expansion of the original Itala Motor Works. By this time, Tom Sopworth had engaged a mechanic, an Australian, named Harry Hawker, whose name and exploits need no introduction to this group. In the latter part of 1910 and the early part of 1911, Hawker, with his flying at Brooklyn, was probably more responsible for the vivid impression described so ably by Lawrence Pritchard than any other pilot. One of the aircraft he used to fly in was the aircraft shown in this picture, the Sopwith Tabloid. That's the leading aircraft in, the, in this picture. It was one of the most successful aircraft ever designed, in my opinion, by Sopwiths. I have always equated its importance with a hurricane which was designed by Cam later on. It's shown here winning the Snyder Trophy race in 1914, just before war broke out. It was here that the chief test pilot of the Sopwith Company, then Howard Pixton, won the second Snyder Trophy race at an average speed of 86 miles an hour. And to show the improvement made here, it's worthy of note that the second aircraft only averaged 51. The stalling speed of this aircraft, 37 miles per hour, and the top speed of 92, gave it a speed range of 55 miles an hour, which was unprecedented in those days. The aircraft was successfully demonstrated all over the world. Hawker took the first aircraft back to Australia and created a reputation out there. Bixton, as the chief test pilot of Hawkers at that time, carved a niche in the annals of British aviation with his successful demonstration of this aircraft. I believe the aircraft, this particular design, was responsible for the long, successful run of biplane aircraft British design. By the beginning of 1911, six flying schools had been established at Brooklyn, and at the outbreak of war, some 318 pilots were trained there the highest total of any aerodrome in the country. Of these, the Bristol School had trained 182, and the, the Vicar School about 77. This slide shows the staff of the Vicar's Flying School, and in the centre you see Frank Barnwell, who you remember in this group, and on his right, Archie Knight, who been a flying sergeant in the RAF and came to Vickers Flying School as their, as a flying instructor. That is one of the slides which will always go down in Vickers history as it depicts the first Vickers aircraft, first aircraft built by Vickers, the REP monoplane of French design. I'll now go quickly through another first of Brooklands. This is the plaque on a small building which still exists, which in spite of all the expansion has been left there, as it commemorates the first passenger ticket ever issued in this country for a public flight. The hut on which this is shown, there is the plaque, is tucked away at the side of a hangar 
and many people will go from the Weybridge work side to it, over the track and pass that without ever noticing it. But it's quite an historical treasure. It's some um, lecture this time impossible to remember all to mention all the events and people I would like to event to mention. But I will try and mention a few of the famous personalities who acquired immortality at Brooklyn. I'm sure their spirits still link home the place, particularly in the early hours when there is no ground mist in the air is still. The conditions so ideal for flying. There is a story that we have a ghost in Brooklyn. Quite a number of people have mentioned it, and some of the night workers claim they've seen it. And when they see it, they hear the noise of a motor car engine. Twice today, I've been told people have heard it. As a result of people knowing I'm going to give this lecture. Now, the second event I would like to mention this evening is far spec less spectacular than some of the others. It concerns development flying of a new British engine, the 100 horsepower Sunbeam, designed by Louis Cotillon, flown by John Alcock. In the list of the 10 uh, most, uh, shall we say, recognized test pilots of the period, the first four were Brooklyn's pilots, led by Hawker, followed by Raynham, Barnwell, and Pixton. Number 10 on the list was John Alcock, a comparative newcomer who was listed largely for the work he did developing the Sunbeam engine which was installed in a Morris Farman biplane. This task was the steady, monotonous job of achieving a maximum number of flying hours to test the engine. Alcock was always the first pilot to take off in those days. He was also the last to land. He achieved a considerable number of successes in the flying events of that day, and he established a reputation for flying in all weathers that was to stand him in good stead in 1919. At the outbreak of war, Brooklyn had already made a notable contribution. But at that time, the motor racing was suspended, and the track was used, or rather misused, as a perimeter road by the solid tired five-ton lorries of the RFC, as Brooklyn became the home of the RFC. The civilian flying clubs were closed down, and the Royal Flying Corps took over all the pre-war sheds, which comprised the complex then known as the Flying Village. There you will see the Flying Village in the distance. There were further wooden buildings erected, and three brick hangars were built right in the middle of that complex, which were later joined together to form for the British Aircraft Corporation, one of the largest skin milling machine shops in Europe. It's been devoted mainly to the milling of wing skins, and here panels have been machined for the Vanguard, the VC-10, the 111, and the Concorde. The RFC created an aircraft acceptance park to receive new aircraft, principally for overseas service. A reserve squadron was trained, was established to train pilots, and then to feed them with new aircraft to France. But the most valuable part during that period was the assembly and flight testing of new aircraft, 
produced by local firms, notably Sopwitz, Martinside, Berio, and after August 15, 1915, Vickers. These works were established to accept the overflow of government orders from the Vickers Kent factories. It was here that later in the war, Vickers turned out something like 1,650 SE5As, the greatest total of this Farnborough design fighter to be produced by any one firm in the country. Of the new prototype states in Brooklyn, the most famous were the SOP with one and a half strapper. Hawker used this in 1916 for his world record flight, which he took at about 24,000 feet. And then came the Pup, the Camel, the Dolphin, the Martin Elephant, and the F3 and F4, the latter attaining the highest speed of any fighter in World War I, 145 miles an hour. Lurie has also produced large numbers of SE-5As. They were made in their Adelston factory and then flown to Brooklyn's. While Martin sites were producing SE-5As at their new works in Brooklyn. This next slide gives you an impression of some of those aircraft. In the background is a camel. Right and left are two SE-5As Vickers built. Our other aircraft of World War One, the Snail Monocoque and the Snipe Salamandra are shown in this picture. This was the pattern which, in my opinion, started British aviation. Sidney Cam had joined Martinside as a boy in the carpenter shops, and in nineteen twenty three he joined the Hawker Company. It had changed its name soon after the war to Sopwith, from Sopwith. And he became the chief designer in 1925. Whilst in the Vickers sheds after the war, Vimy's work continued to be produced. The Vickers sheds and the work there is given a boost by another prize, money prize of £10,000 offered by the Daily Mail for the first direct crossing of the Atlantic from America to the British Isles. Here you see the actual aeroplane that John Alcock flew in that race. During the last years of the war, a thousand Vimy bombers had been ordered, and some 350 were to have been made by the Vickers Company. The end of the war came before those had been made, and they were no longer required. This aircraft was prepared by Vickers for the Atlantic race, and you will remember Hawker's gallant failure in the Sopwith transatlantic aircraft. And no doubt you've heard of Raynham's heroic takeoff or attempts at takeoff with the Martin sign. I won't give details of those stories, neither do I intend to elaborate on the success of Alcock and Brown, who with this aircraft flew over the Atlantic in, 19, in 1919. With the end of war, the frenzied activities of Brooklands came to an end. But Brooklands continued with production, and it is here that the two firms, Vickers, later became BAC, and Hawkers, later became the nucleus of the Hawker Sydney Company, were formed. 
Also in this airplane, I must mention the famous flights of Ross and Keith Smith to Australia and the valiant attempts of Van Reinald and Quinton Brand, followed by Cockrell and Broom, to fly a similar aircraft to Africa, where it was exposed to the critical environment of high temperatures at elevated heights. A great deal was learned from that flight. Whilst this activity on the Vimy was going on, Vickers of the Hawker Company were passing through a period of some financial stringency, but it was to merge successful with the development of the heart and the fury. And here I show a slide of the fury, which was certainly one of the most controllable aircraft of all time, and which in the hands of Hawker's famous chief test pilot made some of the finest acrobatic demonstrations ever seen at Brooklands. This was a slide that was given to me at the last minute. And here you see George Bullman, Johnny Hindmarsh, and over there Philip Lucas. I haven't yet found out who the fourth member of the party was. But I will close this period of the history of Brooklands with a a slide which I would look at with some nostalgia. This is what Oliver Stewart once called the true father of all airliners. It shows a beamy commercial and the seats that were put in it. It used to hold about 15 passengers. What the ARB would say about those seats, which are not even fastened down to the floor today, I hate to, I hate to think. But from the Vickers factory, about this time, came the Virginia, the Victoria, both based on the Vimy, and later the Wildebeest, three successful military variants of the first the Vimy and the later type. In 1932, as a result of collaboration between Rex Pearson and Roy Fedden, the Vickers Vespa, captured the height record with a height of 44,000 feet. I must also skip a story you know so well about the geodetics of Weybridge with Barnes Wallace. I would like to mention or dwell upon the record that the Wellesleys took in 1938 when they flew a distance of 7,157 miles and took the world's long distance record from the Russians. I remember the actual stressing lies we had to tell to get those aircraft airborne the way they took off. I was very closely involved. But I must now come to the more recent history of Vickers, where a combination of Hugh Kilner and George Edwards, in selling and producing the Viscount, raised civil aviation at Brooklands to a peak which could well stand for all time. The aircraft shown in this slide marked the turning point in the tide of post-war civil aviation. Between 50 and 60 aircraft had been sold, and Vickers had laid down 100, and we were building up the parts and we were assembling them for 100 aircraft. We'd sold between 50 and 60. There was considerable gloom, Weybridge, about them. Weybridge works were in fact in danger 
for incurring very heavy financial penalties. I shall never forget the atmosphere when the order for this aircraft was clinched. Capital Airlines ordered 60. We were home and dry. We went on to produce 420 of these aircraft. And now we come to the BC-10. I produced this aircraft mainly to attempt to show how far civil aviation has gone since the days of the Dreamy commercial. This is actually the first takeoff of the first aircraft to be produced. And the fact that it took off in less than half the runway, half the length of the runway, was a source of great jubilation at Weybridge. See in the background these sheds which have been built for the production line of the Baikon. And back in the distance was what we now call the cathedral, which is a large hangar built to assemble the VC-10. I'm not proposing to dwell on this aircraft, which probably you've all flown in, other than to draw a comparison between the VMI, shown on the left, and the VC-10. Just for comparison, I will quote a few of the basic data attached to both aircraft. All up weight, 12,500 VMI, 335,000 VC-10. Weight empty, 7,000 for the VMI. VC-10, roughly 150,000. Payload, VMI 2,500, VC-10 up to 60,000. The dimensions, I think, speak for themselves, but they're both of the same scale. The power of the engine might be interesting. Four Conways in the VC-10, giving a thrust per engine of 22,500 pounds. The VW was powered with two 360 Eagle Rolls-Royce engines. Its maximum speed was 103 miles an hour, as compared with 580 miles per hour of the VC-10. This slide, I thought, would show some of the, uh, at least make my case for Brooklyn being the cradle of British aviation. And I now come toward the end of my lecture. Here is the picture of Brooklyn that I like to remember. This is the scene of an annual flying meeting of the Brooklyn's Aero Flying Club, the flying club to whom we owe so much Duncan Davis. These aircraft, mainly Tiger Moths, were flown by club members. But I certainly recall those pleasant Saturday afternoons when flying was a local event. Names of pilots such as Hubert Broad, Tommy Rose, George Liddell, Jerry Sayer, Chris Staniland, and George Stanthorpe can only whet your appetite for a further study of the many books and records that are available. Here is a picture of a pleasant Saturday afternoon one that I remember so well, so far removed from the activity over there today. And I'm finishing with two particular slides. This has been chosen and shows that Lee Guinness, 
who held the rap the lap record at the Brooklands at 140 and a half mph on the track, and was one of the the last records to be held there. But that picture to me, with the Brooklands, with the uh, Southern Railway at the back, conjures up the names of many speed kings of Brooklyn, to whom I wish to pay tribute tonight. In addition to Lee Guinness, who was uh, driving in that, that particular car, I remember the, and whose initials, I should say, were, will always be commemorated by the Sparky Club, KLG. I remember names like Perry Thomas, Manca, uh, Malcolm Campbell, who actually bought that car after it was, the racing was finished with Lee Guinness. John Cobb, Whitney Strait, Phil Flynn, Noel Pope, and the member of the, the men we remember as the Bentley Boys, Bernardo, Benjafield, Sammy Davis, Kidstone, Dunphy, and others such as Seagrave, K. Don, George Dollar, and of course the inimitable Billy Cotton. And I now come to my last slide to show you a spot where current events and ancient history coalesce. The Ferro Concrete Bridge, which has just been demolished, was damaged by the floods of last year. This point at which the track crosses the river way, you see down below, first appeared in my story as the site of the Iron Age village in the year 500 BC, 2,500 years ago. The railway bridge you see in the background. It is during the excavations for the track at this point that the famous Weybridge bucket is found. And it's during the excavations here that so many Roman remains have been found. The ferro-concrete structure in which the bridge was constructed was the first of its type to be built anywhere in the world. The need to dismantle this bridge due to the damage was a keen disappointment to many civil engineers. I suggest that the Americans have nothing of this nature in their history. Now I've finished by reminding you of the B1 hangar which appeared in the slide of the VC-10 takeoff. This now houses a production line of Concord components, where the largest proportion of the structure of the Concord is being built. These components are being shipped to Toulouse and to Filton for all Concords which have yet been ordered. And we believe, with some justification, that this production line could go on to the year 2000. As a last thought, I suggest that the part played by Brooklands in the careers of two men largely responsible for any success which might come to the Concord project is worth noting. I refer to Sir Morian Morgan, who was a Weybridge apprentice and chaired the SST committee which produced such a convincing case for beginning the project. And also to Sir George Edwards, who in BAC has climbed the ladder from a draftsman to chairman and has led the Concord and the team on it since its first beginning.
I think it just remains me to ask you all to thank Dr. Gardner for a very interesting and informative lecture. And I hope we shall persuade the editor of the journal uh, to publish it in full. So we'll have it there for reference, including the famous bucket. Well, can we acknowledge it in the usual manner?